Beloved, when I was on staff at Grace Community Church in Southern California, um, I was on senior staff, and we'd have senior staff meetings every Monday morning. And Tom Pennington would uh, drop the agenda. And I remember one occasion I went into the senior staff meeting, and it was a second or third bullet. It just said polygamy. And I asked, are we for it or against it? And I said that in jest because we know that even from the beginning in Genesis, God made it very clear, one man, one woman for life. So even the instances of polygamy in Scripture were not part of God's plan. So from the myopic perspective I had in, I think that was, yeah, still 20th century, United States, 24, I don't know, whatever it was. I'm getting old. <laughs> uh, from, from the perspective of 21st, 20th century United States of America, you know, what is there to discuss about polygamy? But the situation was because of the international ministry of John MacArthur, we would get uh, questions from churches all over the world. And the situation was there were people where in countries where polygamy was legal, what do you do when you have a man that is married to one, two, maybe three wives and God's grace and mercy washes into that and people get saved? Do you basically have the man then divorce his second and third wife? Do you illegitimize the children of that? I mean, how does that all work out? And I hadn't even thought of that, but it just was a kind of wake-up call that there is many situations, many scenarios, many environments that are very different outside of what we have here. And I don't think in particular we, as I remember, we came up with any particular real strong gems of wisdom other than understanding the instruction God gives in 1 Corinthians 7, namely that whatever state you are called in, be the best Christian you can be in that state. And beloved, I thought about that occasion this morning because as we come to our passage that we have before us this morning and next week in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 through 9 we have a very similar situation where we have an environment a context where Paul writes to slaves and to masters and the context in which he was writing was very outside of the environment that we have now very different to our and very alien to our normal way of thinking here in the United States of America, even if we think of slavery in the context of the vile practice of the 18th and 19th century. Beloved, listen as I read the Word of God, verses 5 through 9. This morning we're going to focus on just verse 5, but I'm going to read the entire section to remind us of what God has or to tell us what God has before us as we go forward. Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, Render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. 
Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it from your heart as such. Now, we will remember, or this may be news to you if you're new to Scripture and to Christianity, but these chapter verses, excuse me, the chapter divisions and the verses in the Bible aren't part of the original text of Scripture. They were added. In other words, they're not under the superintending influence, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The divisions and the verses, they were added after they were written. These are helpful. But at times, we'll come to a chapter division that we think, well, maybe that wasn't the best chapter division. And I thought of that here this morning because we are finishing up a very clear section that was on the heart of the Apostle Paul that takes us from chapter 5, verse 22, through chapter 6, verse 9 where God directs his attention through the pen, through the quill of the Apostle Paul in terms of dealing with human relationships, with wives and husbands, with children and parents, and then now in our passage of slaves and masters. And what we see in all of these six groups presented in three pairs at the center of each of them, at the heart of human relationship and organization of family, marriage, parent, child, work, or even government, which is not dealt with by the apostle here, is authority and submission. And even coming on the heels of what we've already seen in the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus is that true freedom and true authority resides only in Christ. True freedom only comes from the Savior who emancipate our souls and our wills from the bondage of sin and from the penalty of sin. And that authority True authority, biblical authority, is vested by God and governed by God. And God gives instruction as to how that authority should be wielded. And beloved, because God is not a God of chaos, willing submission and loving leadership makes these things, these organizations, go well, work well together. Now, What we have here is slave and master. And if you've been here as we've been going through Ephesians, you might have heard me say slave masters and then, or you could think employees and employers. And there is an overlap, but understand this, that is absolutely not a one-to-one relationship. The slave and masters that he's talking about here has some similarities to employees and employers as we would think it, but it has many others that are quite different. So before we look in and start unpacking the riches that God has for us in this entire section, verse 5 this morning, what we want to do is look at this slave-master relationship in the original context in which the Apostle Paul was writing and understand what it was, what it wasn't, And then also take a look at what does God say here in Ephesians and what does God not say here. And then even expand the scope in terms of what does God say about the subject of slavery and masters in all of the Bible and what does God not say. And by the way, all of us here basically fall in both of these categories, both the slave and the master, or if we are going to take it by way of application, employee and employer, at some point in our life. Now, there may be some people here that 
at a certain point in time, or perhaps even now, don't have anyone in your ministry in the workplace, you don't have anyone that at any level is under your authority. And there may be an even smaller group of people that don't have anyone in authority above them. The vast majority of us here have some person that is above us or people above us. Even the CEO of a company at some level will be accountable and report to the board of directors. Maybe an independent business owner would be the only example I can think of that doesn't have someone in their ministry in the workplace necessarily above him. So the point is what God tells us here is applicable and relevant and valuable for all of us. And beloved, what we'll see Today and next week, as we seek to unpack this, is that God calls all believers, whether slave and free, whether employee or employer, to mutual accountability and mutual respect and love to one another. In the one new reconciled humanity, in the magnum opus of God's creation at the human level of the church. So first, let's look at and understand what is the slave-master relationship, what it is and what it's not. Uh, Paul opens up with the word slave. The Greek word is doulos, means slave, bond slave. He doesn't use the word diakonos, which means servant, uh, from which we get the English word deacon. The, the word doulos, the word that's translated as slave here, comes from a root meaning word to tie or to bind. And we will remember that the church in Ephesus, Ephesus was a very significant major city in the Roman Empire. And slavery, the slave-master relationship, was a major fact and part of the whole Mediterranean economic system, certainly of the Roman Empire. Uh, the best estimates people have is that around the time that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, there were around 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And which would amount to about one-third of the entire population. Uh, the city of Attica, the Roman city of Attica, historians say that that had may maybe as many as four times more slaves than the amount of citizens of Attica itself. So again, it was a very significant part of the economic life that they were writing to at that time. Now, what kind of slaves were there? There were manual labor slaves, which is probably what we might think of in our American vernacular when we hear that. And if you were a landowner in Rome, you might have had dozens of slaves. If you were a big landowner, you might have had hundreds of slaves. There were also household slaves. Uh, most Roman households had one or two slaves, and actually that was the context that most of the people in the Ephesian church would think of, or at least they'd be familiar with. So you had manual labor slaves, and you had household slaves, something that would be kind of akin to a nanny or a butler, but again from a slavery standpoint. And then there were also professional slaves, so cashiers, clerks, bookkeepers, doctors, teachers, administrators. Uh, some slaves were better educated than their masters. Now, another element to understand is that slavery in Rome wasn't necessarily lifelong. A slave, in fact, even in the first century AD, more and more freedoms, if you will, came into the Roman Empire regarding uh, slaves. Slaves could have the right to marry. They could have a family. They could even own their own property. And in fact, there were slaves in Rome that actually owned other slaves. Uh, another distinction to understand is that 
slavery in the Roman Empire was not based on ethnicity. So it was a distinct situation that they were looking at there. For example, in AD 20, a decree of the Roman Senate dictated that slave criminals were to be tried in the same way as free men. And also in the first century, they began the practice where slaves were to begin to have some kind of modicum of payment to the point where they could save up and then even purchase their own freedom. And some of the records indicate that many slaves and maybe the average slave even was able to purchase his or her own freedom by the age of 30. Now, having said that, we don't want to have an overly rosy picture of slavery. All was not at all well. For example, Aristotle, the brilliant thinker, philosopher, said, a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. So there was, by virtue of the depravity of the human mind, wickedness and sin. The Roman writer Juvenal recorded a situation where a wealthy woman crucified one of her slaves just because she wanted to. Another account tells that there were 400 slaves that were put to death because of the crime of just one slave under one household. And all of this leads to for example, Calvin's statement, when Calvin was commenting on the institution of slavery, this is what he rightly said. Slavery is totally against all the order of God's creation. That human beings fashioned in the image of God should ever be put to such reproach. But let's zero in for a moment back into our text. We're in Ephesians, and the Ephesian audience, most of them, as I mentioned before, would look at this context of slave and master in the context of household slaves. And most Roman households, as I indicated, have one to two slaves. Now, what's interesting is we know that in this section from Ephesians 5.22 through 6.9, that the Apostle Paul is dealing with relationships. What's interesting is many commentators and even some pastors refer to this whole section as God's household codes because he's dealing with relationships in the house. This even gets into the context of the slave-master situation. Now, having said that and understanding this, as I said, you've heard me say before, employee-employer, there is a strong overlap, but it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. Maybe the best way to help us understand the situation and how the original audience would understand this is it's some kind of combination of kind of a household servant, like a butler or a nanny, and an employee-employer situation and the vile practice of, for example, 18th and 19th century America, which the latter is what we think of when we hear the word slavery. And just a side note on that, America with that horrible mark on the history is not at all unique. That's not unique to America. Most every ethnicity in the world has at one time or another enslaved other ethnicities because of sin. So that's at a high level, high level summary of what it is and what it isn't in the original context. But now let's get more importantly to what does God say here in this passage and what does God not say as well as in the Bible at a whole. Now, what we see here is that God, through Paul, doesn't directly condemn slavery as an institution. But 
certainly we should recognize that he absolutely does not condone slavery. Nowhere ever in Scripture does he condone slavery. In fact, when we understand the Word of God, both in the New Testament as well as in the New Testament, the Bible absolutely, directly, explicitly undermines slavery. It attacks it from the inside out. You see, Paul's driving concern here, the major import for him, as should always be for us, is not man's relationship to fellow man, but rather man's relationship to God. Man's relationship to man is important, but it pales in comparison to man's relationship to God. You see, the former has, to be sure, temporal ramifications and results and consequences, but the latter, man's relationship to God, has eternal ramifications, eternal dimensions. So the concerns of this world, as great as they are, whether it's slavery, abortion, whatever other issue that we might think of as great as they are that's not the main driving import and beloved God did not leave you after God saved you and saved me he didn't leave us in the world to try to reform the world rather God left us in the world to be used by him to save men and women from the world out of the world And the danger is when the peripheral, even if it's important, when the peripheral becomes central, then the central becomes peripheral and eventually marginal. That's why God says what he does say and doesn't say what he doesn't say. What does God say? Well, unpack that as we go forward this morning and next week but also the apostle paul when he wrote to the galatian church galatians 3 28 he said the choice words there there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free man there is neither male nor female for you all are one in jesus christ that is the beauty of this one reconciled new humanity that Paul wrote about earlier, even in his letter to Ephesus. Now, Paul, in that verse in Galatians, Paul is not saying that these distinctions don't exist. Of course, they, distinct, they exist. What, <clears throat> what he's saying is they are totally and completely subservient to the one new man, the one new humanity in Christ. Beloved, All earthly distinctions are leveled in the body of Christ, leveled in the kingdom of God. We are pilgrims of eternity. We are a colony of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we belong. That's where we belong in eternity eventually, and this is where we belong right here, right now. Even when certain days of the week we scatter and go out into this sin-stained world to be as it were, lights on top of a hill to point towards Christ. Also, when we think of the subject of slavery and slave, Paul loved to identify himself as a slave of Christ. He did this in his letters to the Romans, Philippians. Titus identified himself as a slave of Christ. Peter, the apostle in his first letter, identified as a slave of Christ. The half-brothers of Jesus, James and Jude, both refer to themselves as slaves of Christ. 
And the Apostle John referred to himself as a slave of Christ. So praise God if you're here this morning and if you're a Christian, if God has forgiven you of your sin and adopted you into his family and has gave you the promise of an eternity with him in heaven, praise God that you are a slave of Christ. And that means that we belong to him. We march to the beat of his drum. We follow his word. We follow his commission. We go in his ways. We follow in the footsteps as slaves of our master. That we are conformed to his image and we long for his exaltation. Well, how about Old Testament Israel? Because God also talks about slavery in the Old Testament as well. The Old Testament nation of Israel had slaves and God governed their treatment and their protection. There were involuntary slaves in the Old Testament and there were voluntary slaves. So voluntary slaves, a person could put themselves into slavery to pay off a debt, for example. And We also see that if it was a good relationship, there are situations, this might be more along the lines of a household slave, of even a manual uh, labor slave, if the slave was blessed by the relationship he had with his or her master, and even the time came where they could become a free man or a free woman, if they wanted to, they could remain in that situation. Turn, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Let me draw your attention to verses 12 through 17. This is what God says through Moses to the nation of Israel regarding the subject of slaves. Deuteronomy 15, verse 12. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years, but in the seventh year you shall set him free. So again, God is establishing boundaries on the institution of slavery. Verse 13. And when you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Pause there for a second. I love in kind of the same way that even as we read in Ephesians when God gives instruction to wives and husbands, that he reminds them and he tells us that that is a model and a picture of the relationship between the bride of Christ, the church, and Christ as the bridegroom. And then he gives instructions to children and parents. And that's a beautiful picture of all of us as as children of God our Father in somewhat the same way. So also when he's giving this instruction regarding the treatment and protection for slaves to the nation of Israel, God reminds them that they themselves were slaves and God set them free. But we'll pick it up in verse 16. And it shall come about, if he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he fares well with you, then you shall take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your servant forever. And also you shall do likewise to your maidservant. He shall become your bond servant. So there was instruction from God regarding 
the voluntary slavery that took place. But also God does give very powerful, strong language around involuntary slavery. In Exodus 21, verse 16, there Moses wrote to the nation, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall be put to death. So being a slave trader, kidnapping a man or a woman or a child to sell them into slavery or to make them your slavery was a capital punishment offense in the nation of Israel. So God absolutely did strongly with the strongest language and the strongest penalty condemn the vile aspect of slavery, or at least one vile aspect of slavery. So, God doesn't directly condemn the institution, but he absolutely does condemn that particular form of it. Now, having said that, as we mentioned, the Bible's main interest, beloved, throughout is man's relationship to God. All its stress, all its emphasis is given to this problem. This is the great message of Scripture. This is the first message of Scripture. When we are right with God, then God can bless that situation that we can be right with one another and we can treat one another the way we should treat one another. And by the way, the gospel, when the gospel takes hold in a community, in a city, in a country, it does have an effect. And even in first century AD, when the gospel began to spread, it instantly began to undermine the institution itself of slavery. We could say that the good news of the gospel lit a fuse, which led to the explosion that destroyed the institution of slavery. Now, because we are still in this sin-stained world, of course, slavery still exists even to this day, but it cannot coexist with the gospel, with the counsel of God about the dignity of man who is made in the image of God. Beloved, Christianity destroys slavery from the inside out. And the level field of the one new reconciled humanity in Christ is a fatal blow shot into the belly of the death star of slavery, we could say. And what we'll see when we begin to look at these verses is Paul draws the attention of the slave in Christ and the master in Christ. Where? Where does he point the slave in Christ and the master in Christ? To Christ. That's where the focus is. In fact, we see that in verse 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, in all the verses as well. And just a note, uh, when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, in that seminal chapter 7, where Paul basically gives a general instruction to Christians that whatever state that you are saved in, be the best Christian. If you were single when you were saved, be the best single Christian you can be. If you're married, wonderful. If you're married even to an unbeliever, don't divorce them, but be the best saved spouse, even with an unsaved spouse, you can be. And listen to what Paul says to slaves in verses 21 and 22 of 1 Corinthians 7. The apostle Paul says, were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. Beloved, the point 
of application. Now that we understand what, God, what the slavery is and what it wasn't in which Paul was writing, when we understand what God says and what God doesn't say, the point of application, the center of gravity, the gravitas of Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 9 is your ministry in the workplace. And so we ask the question, how should work be viewed? Is work a curse or is it a blessing? Is work to be avoided or is it to be embraced? Is your job a hindrance to your ministry or is your job a ministry from God to God in and of itself? Is work tolerated by God or is work ordained by God? And beloved, what we'll see is four motivations in verses 5 through 8. Four motivations for your ministry in the workplace under the umbrella of God's command. And what God commands you and I is we are to work with reverence. We're to work with wholeheartedness. We're to work with eagerness. And we are to work with confidence. Now, we're only going to cover the first one of those. You are to work with reverence this morning. We'll pick up the other three motivations next Sunday, along with, depending on where I get in my study and what is led on my heart, pick up with God's charge and command to the masters as well. But, beloved, understand this. Work is ordained by God. Slavery is not ordained by God. Work is ordained by God. Work is a gift from God to you. And work is your ministry to God, and it is your mission field. And by the way, you beautiful homemakers, you have way more of a full-time job than most of the men and other people here as well. So these principles apply to you absolutely as well. I remember back before we had children when my beloved, oh, actually, no, when we started having children, my beloved Margie, when we had children and I was working, I was traveling around, and people would say, well, what does your wife do? And I'd say, well, she has a way more important, way more difficult job than I do because she was a homemaker. So again, these apply to you. How about, are you retired? Well, if you're retired, biblical retirement doesn't mean swinging from the hammock for the next 20 years. It means you have more time for ministry to your family, ministry and outreach to your neighborhood, ministry within the church. So the wisdom of God in these verses applies and is a blessing for all of us. So the first motivation, beloved, for your ministry in the workplace is you are to work with reverence. You are to work with reverence. So what we see here in verse 5 is obedience to your earthly master that flows out of reverence of your heavenly father. Again, obedience to your earthly master coming out of reverence to your heavenly father. So first is obedience to your earthly master. And what we see here in verse 5 is that again, Paul first addresses in the couplet, he addresses the member of the couple that is the one that is to submit to the other one to whom God has given the vested authority. So Paul, in verse 22, addressed wives first, then the husbands. In chapter 6, verse 1, he addressed children before he addressed parents in verse 4. Here he addresses slaves in verses 5 through 8 before he addresses masters. And he says, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters. Now, understand this too. Let me kind of tie this in with what I had said before about rightly understanding slavery. There is a very important difference and distinction 
here with slaves and masters in comparison to wives, husbands, and children and parents. In both the wife-husband section and the child-parents section, Paul took great pains to make sure that the audience and that you and I some 2,000 years later understand that those first two are part of God's ordained perfect good plan. In the very Garden of Eden, Paul quotes at the end of chapter 5, the instruction from God and the beautiful giving of the wife to the husband of Eve to Adam is part of his creation ordinance of the first foundation of the marriage at the human level. When he was addressing the children and the parents, he cited the fifth commandment of child, obey your parents, honor your mother and father. What we see here in verses 5 through 9 is there's a glaring absence of any kind of reference to the created order. So that is a very powerful distinction that helps us understand that God did not ordain at all the institution of slavery. But he does give instruction to how Christians are to move within that. So he says, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters. Wives, submit to your husband. Children, obey your parents. Slave, be obedient or obey your masters. So all three are, in essence, commanded towards submission, but Paul uses very different language. The word that he uses for the wise to submit is a more gentle word. It means to voluntarily place yourself under the God-given vested authority God has given your husband. But to the, ch- the child and the slave, he says, obey. Literally, hear them and obey. It's the word akuo. It comes from the root word meaning hear. Hear and obey. But he continues, he says, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. And what he's talking about here is he's drawing a distinction between, and literally it's the Lord's according to the flesh. So he's drawing a distinction between your master here on earth and your master in heaven. He's distinguishing between the earthly master and your heavenly father. It's the same Greek phrase that Paul used when he wrote to the church in Colossae. In Colossians 3.22, the New American Standards translates it, Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. So that is what is the heart of what Paul is communicating here at the beginning. Now, having said that, what, is, what are some, for this one motivation of reverence to God and obedience to our earthly master, what are some motivations to these motivations? Well, it is work is ordained by God. So again, not slavery, but work is ordained because when we look at what God says through Moses in Genesis 2.15, Moses writes that the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So that was before the fall. So the point here is God gave the ordinance. God gave the gift of work to man, ordained it prior to the fall. Work is a gift. Solomon, in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 24, Solomon wrote, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. So your labor is from the hand of your gracious good Father in heaven to you and to me. So work is ordained by God even before the fall. Work is a gift from God to you. And work is your ministry 
to God. Solomon in Proverbs this time, 22 verse 29, Solomon says, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Or turn to Acts chapter 13. At the very beginning, there are powerful verses that tell us that all of our ministry, the ministry we do to one another, the ministry of exhortation, the ministry of service, the ministry of love that we do towards one another, ultimately our ministry is unto the Lord. In Acts 13, verse 1, Luke writes, Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. And I love that verse because, again, that is a wonderful reminder that all the ministry that we do, including your ministry in the workplace, is ultimately unto the Lord. And I love the story of the man that was carrying a load of bricks in a wheelbarrow. And as he was walking along with the wheelbarrow, somebody came up and asked him, what are you doing? And the man's response was, I'm building a cathedral for the Lord. Now, I don't know in the mythical story whether or not he was going to actually build a cathedral over in Europe or if that was just the heart attitude of the man. But beloved, whatever you do, if you're a heart surgeon, if, you're, you're, if your statement is, would you like fries with that? Whatever you do, that is God's gift to you. That is your ministry in the workplace unto the Lord. And also, your work is your mission field. The witness of your life and your work provides a platform for the gospel. Proverbs 3, verse 4, Solomon says, You will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. By God's grace and mercy, when you walk according to the counsel of Scripture, you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Or Paul's qualification, God's qualifications for a man that would be a pastor or an elder. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 7 an elder or pastor must have a good reputation with those outside the church. So that's an absolute requirement for a pastor, for an elder, and that's something that all Christians should aspire towards. Now, we do understand that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And with what we're seeing going on in our country and in the Western world, it's like on a rocket sled heading towards that. But if we are persecuted, if we are oppressed, let it be for our stand for the truth. Let it not be because we have poor, sloppy, lazy, shoddy work or other things that would or complicate and compromise our witness. In fact, in Paul's instruction to slaves elsewhere, he gives two strong purpose statements of why it is so important for slaves to be obedient in this manner. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 1, Paul wrote to Timothy, Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. To Titus, in Titus 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul wrote to Titus that Titus should urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith 
so that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Beloved, that is our desire that our ministry in the workplace would be a beautiful adornment on the doctrines of grace and the good news of the gospel message. It's been said very often that the two wings of evangelism are proclamation and witness. To be sure, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But we ordain the message that we give to people with our witness, with our love, with the fruit of the Spirit, and with our ministry in the workplace. Therefore, ergo, work is a blessing to be embraced, not a curse to be avoided. And of course, being a Christian certainly doesn't excuse poor or half-hearted work. And I cringe when I see professing Christians do lazy, sloppy, poor work. That's why Solomon wrote, Proverbs 14, verse 23, In all labor there is profit, but more talk leads only to poverty. So, beloved, your work, your ministry, your life, let it all, let your whole being be excellence before the Lord. Whether then you eat or drink in all that we do, let us do it unto the Lord for his glory and for our witness. Now, in the context of obedience to our earthly masters, I'm going to give a very pointed application right now that is quite prevalent and pressing in our society in, in the world. I had a wonderful godly deacon reach out to me almost a month ago regarding his personal conviction and wanted to multiply wisdom regarding the vaccination. Now, I take great pains, as many of you will know, to try to stay away from all the extra biblical things and let it just be the pure black and white truth that thus saith the Lord from Scripture. Uh, let me just say a couple things about the vaccination and the vaccines. First, I thank God for the vaccine because there are many people that are even among us right now that I hadn't seen in some cases for over a year that got the vaccination and now feel comfortable in part of worshiping together and gathering together. So I thank the Lord for how that came about. There are others among us that don't want to take the vaccination. Some don't want to take it out of ethical and moral against the kind of totalitarian and authoritarian takeover in the Western world where we went from two weeks to flatten the curve to you need to be double, triple vax just to be a productive member of society. And there are others that don't want to take the vaccination out of medical reasons. But beloved, this is what I want to say to you. And part of what the discussion I had with the brother elder was, he was coming from the standpoint, he wasn't interested in the vaccine, mostly from the moral, ethical reasons. There were some concerns medically as well. But for him to continue with his ministry in the workplace, he would have to make a choice whether or not to do it. And I understand that's getting more and more widespread for us now. So beloved, understand this. In Christ, you have freedom. If you don't want to take the vaccine, but if you analyze your ministry in the workplace, you understand and look at and pray through your responsibility to be a provider for your family and your household, and you decide to take the vaccine, even though it's something you don't want to do, you are not capitulating to the forces of evil. You have the freedom to do that. And of course, you have the freedom to say, I'm not going to take that jab. So that is what I want you to understand. It is a difficult and tricky situation, but there is freedom in Christ. Now, having said that, I might imagine there might be one or two questions or scenarios that might come up. I 
and the elders are always available to minister and in whatever way, shape, or form we can be a blessing and used by God to encourage you, we would do that. So, obedience to your earthly masters and the obedience to your earthly masters, Paul goes from the lesser to the greater, it comes from your reverence to your heavenly father. And the point here that flows through the rest of this passage and all of our understanding of everything in life is that the Bible does not allow a distinction between the sacred and the secular. There's nothing in your life as a child of God that's secular. Everything is sacred. Abraham Cooper said there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign and Lord over all, doesn't cry mine. And what Paul says here is, slaves, be obedient to your masters with fear and trembling. And he's not saying fear and trembling of your earthly master. Let your Obedience to your earthly master be out of and with fear and trembling of your heavenly father. Back in chapter 5, verse 21, he said, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament, Proverbs 1, verse 7, the beginning, uh, excuse me, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. All walks of life, including your ministry in the workplace. And this whole coupling together of fear and trembling, the Apostle Paul talked about that as characterizing his ministry to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 2-3, Paul says to the immature Corinthian church, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. In his second biblically recorded letter to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 7, in describing Titus' ministry to the church in Corinth, He said, Titus' affection abounds all the more toward you. He remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Uh, Philippians 2 verse 12, as Paul would kind of move away from the dimension of fear and trembling in our characterizing our ministry of the Lord, characterizing and galvanizing our ministry at the horizontal level, as he goes towards the vertical level, Philippians 2 12, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Test yourself and examine yourself, uh, 2 Corinthians 13, to ensure you're in the faith. Or, I love the example of the godly, courageous women in Mark 16, verse 8, the last verse of Mark, that the courageous women, when all the rugged fishermen apostles had scattered like scared rabbits, the godly women were at the tomb, and in Mark 16, verse 8, He writes, they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Beloved, fear and trembling of the Lord characterizes and galvanizes and shapes and forms and strengthens everything we do, including our ministry in the workplace. Martin Lloyd-Jones had these choice words. He said, the Christian doesn't merely do things because they're good and right and because it's wrong to do certain other things. The mark of the Christian is he does everything as unto the Lord in the fear of Christ because Christ is his, I'll add, or her Lord. Beloved, In the context of life, most of us don't spend the majority of our lives up 
on the mountaintops of joy or deep in the valleys of sorrow. We're usually on the plane of everyday life. And in all things, including your ministry in the workplace, Christ is your example. And let me draw your attention to 1 Timothy 2, and I'll close with verses 18 through 21. Listen to what Peter, the apostle, said by way of encouragement to these churches in Asia Minor that were suffering persecution. 1 Peter 2, again, verse 18, Peter writes, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For... You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Beloved, Christ is our example in all things, including even our ministry of submission to our employers or our ministry of mutual respect, love, and heart to the employees that we'll get to in verse 9. Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, God, for giving us instruction as how to wives and husbands are to relate to one another and children and parents. Thank you, Lord, even in the context of the institution of slavery and masters, how your word, your truth, penetrates through the wickedness of man into the hearts and souls of men and women to glorify you in whatever state in which you call them. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your perfect, ultimate example of sacrifice and love. And we pray, Lord God, that you would bless us to be better employers, bless us to be better employees, bless us to better love one another and to submit to one another and to encourage one another. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, and we desire to be used by you, even as we would depart from here, to demonstrate the love of Christ and to proclaim the good news of forgiveness of sin that you provide. Amen.